Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to the Outsider Art Podcast, Episode 6, Martin Ramirez, Part 2. Last time on the Outsider Art Podcast, we left Martin Ramirez in 1948, having met Tamo Pasto, the main actor in his Discovery narrative. Pasto would go on to play one of the major roles in the last part of Ramirez's life as an artist and be the primary source of his story and guardian and promoter of his work as it made its way firstly into minor exhibitions and then, via Jim Nutt, and Phyllis Kind into the commercial art world. The story of how Martin Ramirez became an outsider art master can be seen as an archetype which follows a tried and true formula. As the mythology built up around his legend, it conveniently ticked all the boxes for a classic outsider artist tale type, as summarised by Cara Zimmerman Campbell in her thesis formulaic narrative in outsider art. Quote, 1. Art maker is born into often adverse circumstances, suffers situationally and or emotionally through childhood and early adulthood. 2. Art maker suffers emotional, physical or psychological unrest or change as a catalyst for creation. This unrest or change may occur at any stage of the art maker's life sometimes overlapping with Category 1. 3. Whatever motivation within Category 2, the art maker creates without validation or outside encouragement until a, quote, discoverer recognises the output as art. 4. Discoverer promotes the work using the art market's resources in a manner unavailable to the art maker. 5. The work is recognised as artistic output, though is qualified in its definition. This is where the insider-outsider dichotomy operates. The discoverer's name remains associated with the work and its creator, as the discoverer brought the work to light and defined it through connections and knowledge. The discovery of the outsider by the insider is a standard trope, and one that makes sense as an uncomfortable real-world truth. Without the means, or often the impetus, to promote their work to a wider audience, the classic outsider artist works in a vacuum, sometimes, but not always, within an internal feedback loop fueling their creative drive. By fate and chance, the insider discoverer comes upon their work, recognises the artistry, and, in the case of Pasto, the value to his research into psychology theory and art expression, and becomes a supporter of and cheerleader for the artist's work. The benefit to the insider discoverer is sometimes more substantial than that gained by the artist, enhancing their professional reputation and, in many cases, their bank balance. Pasto spent several years in and around Ramirez's world, even spending a few months at DeWitt during a fellowship year studying Ramirez and other artists within the institution. 
He gave lectures and presented exhibitions, which included Ramirez's work, and brought students and other artists to the hospital to visit Ramirez. Through this intensive study, we get a good idea of how Ramirez went about constructing his large drawings. As described by Espinosa and Espinosa, quote, Ramirez would crouch on the floor over enormous sheets of paper, some more than 40 by 100 inches, that he had assembled from the smaller pieces he had received from the hospital as well as any scraps he had found in the garbage. Ramirez's tools consisted only of pencils, tongue depressors he used as straight edges to sketch his designs, and the matchsticks he employed to apply a coloured paste he created from crayons, charcoal, red juice extracted from fruits, shoe polish, his own saliva, and sometimes even his own phlegm, all mixed in small pots he made from oatmeal and then dried on a radiator. End quote. Victor Espinosa expands on this in his dissertation Framing Martin Ramirez. Quote, it has been said that Ramirez kept the long drawings rolled while he was working by sections, which is a simplification of a more complex method. Everything always depended on the extension of the space he used as a drawing area, but Ramirez kept the drawing rolled only when he was already painting it. He initially traced a motif with graphite pencil, sometimes using the sketches he stored under the mattress and under his clothes. The composition developed according to the available surface. Sometimes he added sections of paper to incorporate new elements to the composition. End quote. It is often thought that institutionalised outsider artists, including Ramirez, work in isolation from culture, which is one of the core tenets of the Art Brut Manifesto. However, Ramirez was able to participate in activities such as watching contemporary movies, viewing theatre performances, participating in ceramics and occupational therapy workshops, and accessing books and magazines, such as Walter T. Foster's How to Draw series. The Saturday Evening Post was a particular favourite of Ramirez, and most of the clippings he used for his art whether as material to draw over, images for his collages, or as visual inspiration came from this highly illustrated publication. In 1952, Ramirez received his one and only visit from a family member during his time in hospital. His nephew, José Gómez Ramirez, visited and spoke with him over a two-day period. According to Gómez, the conversation was long but not easy and it was his opinion that Ramirez's mind had frozen in time, as he apparently believed that the Cristero Rebellion was still going on, despite the fact that it had ended over 20 years prior. Ramirez stated that he didn't want to return to Mexico, and when asked by Gomez if he wanted to send a message to his wife, Maria Santa Ana, he replied apocalyptically, quote, just tell her that we will see each other in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. End quote. Several exhibitions were held during Ramirez's lifetime, mainly at colleges and universities or minor galleries in the Sacramento area. These were arranged primarily by Pasto or Gail North, who worked at the hospital as a Grey Lady of the Red Cross 
and was an enthusiastic champion of Ramirez's work. Pasto's summary of Ramirez's life, which was to become the default version for decades, was written for these exhibitions. The exhibitions didn't mention Ramirez by name, as was typical when displaying the work of institutionalised patients, and he was described in one review as, quote, an elderly and chronically insane Mexican farm worker, end quote. Reviewers had a melange of ways of describing Ramirez's art, from abstract paintings, to recollections of his country's folk art, to art historian Dr. Alfred Neumeyer, who considered Ramirez, quote, a truly creative artistic personality, a sort of Mexican Henri Rousseau, end quote. In general, these exhibitions were well received by the public and reviewed enthusiastically by critics. Tamo Pasto also tried and failed for many years to engage the interest of major galleries and museums in showing Ramirez's work, both during his life and after his death, sending samples to curators from his large personal collection. In 1955, he sent 10 drawings to the Guggenheim Museum in New York to try to generate interest, but an exhibition never eventuated. These drawings were rediscovered 40 years later in the museum's warehouse, and thanks to this gift, the museum now holds the largest public collection of Ramirez's artworks. It was not, however, until the 1970s that Ramirez's work would begin to grace the walls of galleries and museums the world over, as he was discovered all over again, and his star began to rise meteorically. But first, let us see Martin Ramirez to his rest. Born in 1895 in the state of Jalisco, Mexico, Ramirez would spend the final 32 years of his life institutionalized in the state of California, USA. He died at age 68 of preliminary edema in his bed at DeWitt State Hospital in Auburn, Sacramento at 6am on February 17, 1963. Following his death, Dr. Max Dunovitz, who'd been collecting Ramirez's drawings since Tamo Pasto had exited Ramirez's orbit in 1958, sent a small collection of his work to his family in Mexico. These drawings were eventually all destroyed, having been hidden away from the extended family and then hung outside by his oldest daughter and burned in the late 1960s. Dunovitz also kept a large collection, some of which he shared with his family members in a vain effort to get them to appreciate Ramirez's art. The works were preserved in a sleeping bag and used as wrapping paper by his grandson following Dunovitz's death and were eventually introduced to market by the Rico Maresca Gallery in New York City in 2008. The estate of Martin Ramirez and the Dunovitzes have agreed to a profit share on the sale of these works. The large collection held by Tamo Pasto, however, followed a different path and became the first works by Martin Ramirez to reach the market. Victor Espinosa sums up Pasto's important role in giving the world the opportunity to enjoy Ramirez's work. Quote, the story about the destruction of some of Ramirez's drawings by his family and the trajectory followed by Dunovitz's collection 
could help to better understand the role played by Pasto's intervention. If the family had received all the drawings at that time, when they did not have any value, and at a time when the conditions necessary to introduce them to a large artistic community did not exist, the drawings probably would not have been preserved. As for Dunovitz, the drawings he kept did not circulate in the art world, but ended up in a basement for more than 40 years. Pasto, by contrast to the Ramirez family and to Dunovitz, sold almost his entire collection to artist Jim Nutt and art dealer Phyllis Kind, which paved the way for Ramirez's entry into the art market and to reach a growing number of artists and collectors looking for artworks produced by marginalised contemporary folk, outsider or self-taught artists that were examples of, quote, pure and authentic creativity, end quote. So, while the idea of the insider discoverer finding and profiting from the work of the outsider artist is an uncomfortable one, and there are some stories of gold rush-like exploitation out there, there is also a lot to be grateful for. Without Tamo Pasto, Jim Nutt and Phyllis Kind, the work of Martin Ramirez may have been no more than a tiny footnote in art history, all but forgotten, his masterworks gone up in smoke, or disintegrating in storage rooms and basements. In 1968, artist Jim Nutt apparently first discovered the work of Ramirez during a visit to Sacramento State College campus, where he had been hired to teach. This led him to Tamo Pasto, and eventually, with Phyllis Kind, who represented Nutt at her gallery in Chicago, Nutt and Kind purchased most of Pasto's collection in late 1972. There may have been about 300 drawings in this transaction, although no one is entirely certain, which Nutt and Kind divided between them. Some of the works were in bad condition, and were initially restored in a haphazard manner, including ironing some of them flat. Eventually, they were deacidified and conserved professionally. As a dealer, and needing to recoup, Kind put her half of the works up for sale immediately, and within 15 years had sold almost all of her collection. Nutt's collection was restored gradually, and were released to market once Ramirez's work had reached more substantial prices. In 1973, Kind arranged the first commercial exhibition of Ramirez's work in Chicago. It was only the second time that Ramirez's name had been used in the exhibition of his art, the first being in 1970 at an exhibition called American Primitive and Naive Art at the San Francisco Art Institute. Having been traditionally described as a psychotic artist, or less PC variations on that theme in previous exhibitions, for the 1973 show, Ramirez was described as a contemporary American naive. The reviews of the show were positive, with critics impressed by the vitality in Ramirez's work, but the reviewer by Robert Glauber, quoted by Victor Espinosa, demonstrates the difficulty that was inherent in viewing this uncommon art for both audiences and critics of the time. Quote, in short, is that art or madness? Is there a necessary separation? Is there some curious force, inner and uncontrollable, that takes hold of an irrational mind and helps it set down seeming chaos in a manner that is well-organized, 
tightly and minutely conceived? I don't know. But it is obvious as you study this fascinating exhibition that Martin Ramirez had either a highly original talent, a vision of the world that was all his own, or he was possessed by a demon of self-expression that drove him to acts of artistic creation far beyond our expectations of a hopeless paranoid schizophrenic. The show should make us wonder about the basic nature of creativity. End quote. Categorising and defining Martin Ramirez's art was for a long time fraught with difficulty. Described through convenience or, for lack of a better term, as naive or folk art, of which it was neither, it eventually fell into the outsider category. Victor Espinosa identifies three exhibitions among the many that Ramirez featured in that placed his work in that genre and cemented his reputation as an outsider art master. The Outsiders exhibition, held at the Haywood Gallery in London in 1979, which featured 22 of his drawings. Heart of Creation, the art of Martin Ramirez, his first retrospective in Philadelphia in 1985. And Parallel Visions, Modern Artists and Outsider Art, held in Los Angeles in 1992. And while these exhibitions served to further enhance Ramirez's reputation, there was still little movement towards clarifying what exactly he was saying in his work, outside of analysing it along psychoanalytic lines. He fit the outsider category, and that was enough. The presentation of Ramirez's work as Mexican featured in two exhibitions in the 1980s, placing him among the Latin American art community as part of the Hispanic Art Exhibition in 1987, and reclaiming him as Mexican in Martin Ramirez, Pintor Mexicano, which opened in 1989 in Mexico City. Again, there was scant attention paid to digging further into Ramirez's biography. The Hispanic art exhibit featured an essay by Octavio Paz, creating a liberally fictionalized immigrant Ramirez as being emblematic of the Latino-Latina experience in the USA and the Mexico City exhibition presenting Ramirez's work in amongst traditional folk art, tonalan ceramics, and toys in an effort to repatriate him to Mexican soil. Ramirez's biography sits at the confluence of both the immigrant experience and his traditional Mexican upbringing, and he emphatically brought both together in his art. While a dominant narrative within the art world is that the art must speak for itself, we find that with Martin Ramirez, as with other outsider artists, he is telling stories with his art, stories that are enriched by knowing more about the storyteller. And next time on the Outsider Art Podcast, we will take a closer look at some of the stories that Martin Ramirez was telling us. So please join me for Martin Ramirez Part 3. And do check out the podcast website at shows.acast.com slash outsider-art-podcast for a reading list. And while you're browsing the net, check into our Facebook page at facebook.com slash outsiderartpodcast. And that's all one word. Feel free to review, subscribe, follow and share the Outsider Art Podcast. It would really help the podcast to grow. Thank you for listening.